Hello and welcome to this week's journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm Madalina Chobana, and today's episode will bring you highlights from our newsy-wide digital journalism event, which took place last week in London. The day was a mix of panel discussions, workshops and spotlight talks on topics including reaching new sources on chat apps, editorial analytics, data and how people get news on their mobile devices, amongst others. So for more written coverage of the day, make sure you check out the blogs on newsywire.com. In the meantime, here's a snapshot of the conversation on podcasts. We'll first hear from Maeve McLenahan, a freelance investigative journalist who produced her first investigative podcast for US radio show Reveal, and then from Jason Phipps, head of audio at The Guardian, on why 2016 will be an important milestone in podcasting. was a kind of new area for me with investigative podcasts because in a print piece you can put all the detail you want you can put all these facts and figures of which we had many of this percentages and and kind of complex elements of timeline um, but with this we had to kind of strip it right back um, I'd say it helped that we had a solid idea of the story when we started making the podcast um, I'm sure there are people that kind of investigate as they go along. Well, Serial is the prime example, I guess, of that, of kind of, you know, taking the story with you. But I certainly found it quite easy to know that what the arc was going to be before we set out to collect some of the assets we needed. And then there was, like I say, the element of telling this quite complex story in a digestible way. So the tip we were given from Reveal is no more than two figures, really, in, in the whole segment that we were doing because people just wouldn't process these kind of complicated numbers and percentages and the kind of illustrative things we were trying to tell through that. So rather it was trying to tell it in the simplest way so that even if you're you know, cycling around on the tube, whatever, you can get the crux of the story. And then there was certainly, we had to recognize that Reveal had its own house style, if you will. They have this very conversational tone. The start of the show opens with their presenter kind of doing a back and forth with one of the reporters, which we did. And they just have a much more conversational way of telling things while not editorialising. So we were quite careful to, to kind of keep within the tone of the piece. And then, much like you know, many, many great podcasts do, we let the individual case study story tell the whole investigation. So rather than starting from this kind of macro perspective of this is what's happening and, and here's all the numbers and complexities, we told it through the story of one guy called, uh, well, we called him Abdul, who had arrived in the UK back when he was 14. He's now 23 at, at the point we told it, and for years had been living this life in limbo, not sure if he was going to be sent back, not sure if he was allowed to take up his university placements because he couldn't get the student loans to do so. And so through Abdul, we took the, the listener on this journey, starting with what it was like to leave his mum and never see her again, age 14, to travel across borders and see some really horrible things, and then to arrive in England and try and acclimatise. So I guess my top tips that I learned being a very much a, a beginner, newbie to this, is the benefit of transcribing things as you go along, especially if you have hundreds and hundreds, but also that you don't have to transcribe everything, listening back and picking out the top moments, transcribing those out. After each recording, noting down, he said this amazing thing here, and that's really the one crux that I want to take from it. So you don't have to go and re-listen to everything at the end. 
we had these kind of key moments and scenes before we knew the arc of the script. So we used those moments to drive the storytelling um, rather than trying to manipulate things into it, which I think was quite useful. As everyone says in documentaries, show people don't tell. So using these stories rather than bombarding them with hard facts. And then using those moments to zoom out and give the wider picture so this isn't just happening to Abdul. And then just patience and the kind of journalistic eye of knowing what you need to govern and how to ask the questions in a way that elicits uh, a coherent response, I guess. This year, 2016, I, I really think this is a real turning point. I mean, I think this has been said about podcasting before, but I, I can't sort of over, over sort of emphasize how 2016 will be a game changer for podcasting. There's good reasons. And then The Guardian, we have 50% uh, growth uh, in Guardian users surveyed in 2016, listen to podcasts, so a sort of a 9% growth from last year. And also, our podcast listeners for The Guardian are very valuable for us because, as they said, they're, they're super loyal, which very engaged with our content. Um, so a 65% super loyal rating set against a 43%. And that sounds very sort of internal and technical, but it's actually a very important aspect of why we do podcasting. The audience essentially for podcasting is boiled down to access to millennials. It's a key demographic for The Guardian, obviously. It's a key demographic really for all media brands. We're trying to reach a new audience and one that is, is, is shifting. And is not, they're not in the usual places and they don't have the usual media consumption patterns. There's a reason why they're the headphone generation. They've got 4G. I've always said that you, you know, people see a phone and I see a radio basically for a generation who will never own a radio. These people basically don't have that habitual thing, even if their parents listen to radio in the car and, and in the kitchen. They've, they've pivoted away. They've got such a, an amazing array of content to consume. And podcasts has worked perfectly for that kind of uh, relationship with the phone. There's a real business model emerging with podcasts. And it's something I say in The Guardian all the time, which is the advertising model is broken around text. It's definitely broken. But in audio, it's not broken. Because of its engagement level, because it has such impact, actually, advertisers are really, really uh, engaged with you know, how valuable a brand sort of a message in a podcast can be. I mean, it's not the only reason to do things, but it, th there is an emerging kind of business model around it. And it's, it's more precarious here in the UK, but it's, it's, it's huge. It's about to go huge in the US. Lots of challenges. <laughs> Data, as you mentioned, is a problem. It's, pro it's, it's hard because actually the user experience around audio hasn't really shifted since we began podcasting 10 years ago. The players even look the same as they did 10 years ago. It's incredible how, how slow innovation has been in that area. UK advertising, you generally are dealing with middle-aged men like me who don't consume podcasts. So it's a cultural bridge to get over. They might have heard of Serial. Well, everyone's heard of Serial, of course, and they always have that Serial moment. But I think what they misunderstand is just how kind of loyal the audiences are. And I think that's that impact that's problematic to get across. I've not even mentioned the big thing, which is the car. The car is just about to happen, and it represents an absolute step change in podcasting. The interface in the car will be completely seamless with your phone, or will offer you very, very sort of broad range of content on demand in your car, and then really the car radio is dead, and that means podcasting takes kind of center stage. Later on in the day, we heard from Pat Long, head of news development at The Times and Sunday Times, who explained what stood behind the two outlets' decision to switch from rolling coverage to an edition-based strategy. Because we have a paywall model, our key metrics for us at the moment are around um, subscriber acquisition and subscriber retention. Now, obviously, we are very interested in uh, the volume of content that's being read. We do have adverts on the site as well, so we're interested in CPM. 
but mainly we're interested in acquisition. So it's very important to us to keep our readers happy. And there are certain levers that we know support subscriber acquisition, and those things like uh, cross-device usage, um, amount of time spent with each product, and our previous website and smartphone apps weren't satisfying those models. So we found that from looking at our data, our readers were using the website at set times of the day, at 9, noon, and 5, generally speaking, but they're only visiting their website a couple of times a day. So that doesn't really reflect on that kind of idea of engagement and cross-device browsing and using, getting our readers to, to engage with our content on as many devices as possible over the course of the day. And so 2.7 times a day, people were checking into our devices. And we felt from talking to them, and it's partly to do with our uh, subscriber demographic, actually, but there was a real feeling that they were just overwhelmed by the amount of information that was out there. And one of the things that they trusted us about us and liked about us was our ability to filter that, cut through the noise, deliver them exactly what they needed to know at any point, but also give it that kind of context and give it the time to take, quote-unquote. And I think getting to that point was quite liberating because it, it allowed us to think about precisely what it is about our operation that we do well. As I say, we're not set up necessarily to do constantly breaking news throughout the day, throughout the week, but also what it is about the internal hierarchies and the history of how newspaper news sites developed that got us to that point. So I think there was a sort of critical point, I guess, in the early to mid-90s where a lot of newspapers started going online and there was some period of confusion about what they should be and we ended up with this hybrid of like a newspaper, essentially, and then CNN. So because newspaper websites could broadcast totally, continually, they just did because the, the, the capability was there. So we're trying to pull away from that idea, I think, and play to our strengths and our heritage and the kind of things we've done well for the last 250 years, essentially, and get away from the idea that because we could publish all the time, that was what our readers wanted, whereas really it was the, actually the opposite. They wanted us to give them a finishable edition, publish at set times throughout the day, exactly the same as a newspaper where it's structured from start to finish with news at the front and the sport at the back, and uh, something that was finishable. And that idea is really crucial to our readers as well because if you think about the amount of information that's out there, they wanted to have a complete package that they knew they could finish and have the satisfaction of feeling like they were up to date. So actually, we're starting to think more like potentially a radio station, Radio 4, who broadcasts their news on the hour every hour in exactly the same format, and, re and uh, listeners know that it will be published on the hour or they'll be broadcast on the hour. We're moving more towards that model than the hybrid of CNN and newspaper that I mentioned before. And finally, the day concluded with an enlightening talk on best practices for working with eyewitness media on social networks. Hazel Baker, digital news editor for Sky News, gave a quick run-through of how this process works at Sky. Starting with approaching eyewitnesses at Sky News. For us, it's really important to get organised as soon as a story breaks, working out who is going to do the chasing um, for material for my witnesses. It's usually led by my desk, which is the digital news desk, uh, but it may also be led by the home desk or the foreign desk at news. And sometimes if the newsroom's quiet overnight, it falls to individual producers. Whoever's taking charge needs to work out who's searching with them and uh, what level of um, engagement they're going to have, how they're going to communicate what they've found and what we can use online. Along with this, before we start any approaches on social media, I think it's up to the uh, people leading the search to think before they contact these individuals, is the eyewitness in potential danger? And also for us, are they under 18? I often find eyewitnesses are under 18, particularly using Snapchat, etc. 
we've got to have a very, very strong justification to approach these people. And one of the first things we need to ask is, can we speak to someone to give permission, parental or carer permission? How can we make contact is obviously another key consideration. Um, as George mentioned, going private messaging is, is usually preferable. It's much easier to share contact information, um, off the record details, uh, and also to share concerns that the eyewitness uh, may have about what we're going to do. Um, there's lots of ways we can do that, and it's up to us to make sure the journalists in our newsroom understand how you can send messages through different networks, for example, sending private messages on Instagram, which hasn't actually been available for all that long. So we need to keep on top of the latest developments the social networks are offering us in terms of getting in touch with people. And my last point, before we make that contact, let's decide what it is we actually really need to ask that individual. Is it, do we just need their picture? Or is it more than that? Obviously, we're a rolling news channel. Live phone interviews are a huge part of our breaking news output. So more often than not, those eyewitnesses, initially, we need to be asking, can you speak to us on the phone if you're in a safe position to do so? Then if you do that, the conversation around, can we use your picture, can we use your video, becomes a little bit more natural. And I think it makes the eyewitness feel more valued. We don't just want the content they're producing. We actually want their assessment of the situation. It provides content that then we can reuse, particularly if you then cut up a section of the phone interview and put their content over the top, their video, their stills, it makes for a very powerful sequence. That's it from the 17th News Rewired, but remember to check the websites towards the end of this week. We'll be posting more material from the event, including full audio from the sessions and slides from our guest speakers. Thanks for listening to this week's journalism.co.uk podcast.